You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Formerly Bulletproof Radio. For 10 years, across a thousand episodes and a quarter billion listens, my podcast has elevated what you knew about the capabilities of your mind and body. And because we're at the 10-year anniversary, I'm evolving Bulletproof Radio even further in my plan to upgrade humanity. And I'm evolving myself as well. I invite you to expand your knowledge, explore your performance, and embrace your possibility with The Human Upgrade. You'll meet bright thinkers and radical doers who push the boundaries of science, technology, personal development, and human performance in every way imaginable. Every guest you listen to, every topic you learn about, Every new idea you discover on this podcast is there to move you forward. Join me on this next evolution to upgrade your mind, body, and life. And be sure that you're subscribed to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey on your favorite podcast platform so you hear every single episode. My commitment to you is that the time you spend with me on The Human Upgrade will always return more value to you than you spent on it. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey, formerly called Bulletproof Radio, back when I worked with Bulletproof. Now, we have a live studio audience, which is from The Upgrade Collective, my mentorship and membership group where we meet every week and have really cool conversations about the latest biohacking stuff and learn all my books and learn all the latest toys. Many members of The Upgrade Collective have this cool thing on their arm, kind of like I do, and it's called the levels patch for metabolic health. And you just wave your phone over it and it tells you your blood sugar levels. Our guest today is Dr. Casey Means. And she looks at human potential. She's a co-founder of Levels and she's the chief medical officer. So this is someone who has gone deep both on the medical side, but very specifically on the, what the heck is our blood sugar doing to tell us our metabolism and our performance as human beings. Uh, and full disclosure, I am an early advisor and investor in Levels because I think this is so cool. I was CTO and co-founder of the first company to get heart rate from the wrist uh, back in the day, more than 10 years ago. The stuff that's on your Apple Watch right now and all the other watches is like grandchildren of that stuff. So I care about this space greatly. And this is one of the things I am most excited about. It's anytime I want, I can know how my body's doing at turning air and food into energy. Oh my God. So we've got an expert and co-founder of the company. Dr. Casey or Casey, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. It is such a thrill to be here with you. So what did it feel like as a graduate of Stanford the first time you got invited to guest lecture on campus? It was an incredible experience to go back in that teaching role because I really got to go back and talk about and synthesize some of the things I'd learned over the five to seven years since medical school. Um, And so much of that was really about shifting my thinking from being really indoctrinated into in a reactive medical system where we wait until diseases emerge and then we heroically treat them with you know, drugs and surgery to really coming to realize during my surgical training that that leaves a lot to be desired in terms of actually maximizing health. And to really get to go back and share that with the students and share how powerful a data-informed dietary and lifestyle approach to health um, can be, how powerful that can be, um, was really, really thrilling. 
There's something surreal when you first, uh, you go back to somewhere you've been a student and you're like, wow, it's so weird. I'm at the other end of the microphone. Um, so it's always, it's just a bit of a, wow, the world just expanded a little bit. So I, I imagine that's kind of cool in Stanford's, uh, uh, you know, school with a little bit of a reputation. It's not like it's a Wharton or anything, but it's, you know, it's a pretty good school. I'm just, just <laughs> no, no guessing where I went to school. <laughs> now, you mentioned surgical training, um, but you started a metabolic health company. How did you go from surgery to metabolism? Because surgeons are usually the ones with like the convertibles and the big egos, uh, but they don't really do metabolism. So what happened there? Yeah. So I was on that track and, you know, I'd done my undergrad in medical school training at Stanford and then I went on to head and neck surgery residency. I was on that track and, you know, I'd done my undergrad in medical school training at Stanford and then I went on to head and neck surgery residency. And in my surgical training, I was treating and operating on diseases of the ear, nose, and throat. And I was really struck by how so many conditions that I was treating were fundamentally rooted in chronic inflammation. It was sinusitis, laryngitis, thyroiditis, and all of these itises. That is the suffix in medicine that means inflammation. And it really caused me to step back and say, why is there so much chronic inflammation at play? And why are we just reaching for our prescription pads for all sorts of heavy-duty steroids to quell the immune system instead of asking what is causing the inflammation, what is the root cause of that? Because certainly we can, we can go to the operating room and we can bust a hole in the sinus and suck pus out, but that does not do anything to change the core underlying physiology that led to inflammation because you cannot operate on the immune system. And so I became really sort of obsessively interested in understanding what are the root causes of inflammation and how to mitigate those in hopes of truly helping people change their physiology and keep people out of the operating room. And in that deep dive, it became very clear to me, abundantly clear, um, with you know hordes of research to support it, that one of the key fundamental triggers of chronic inflammation in the body is dysregulated blood sugar and metabolic dysfunction. And so this means dysfunction in the way that our bodies make and store energy. And like you said, take food and water and air and turn it to, into energy that we can use. And unfortunately, as, as you know better than anyone, our, our modern lifestyles make it extremely difficult to escape metabolic dysfunction. Um, a recent UNC study estimated that 88% of American adults have at least one biomarker of poor metabolism. And this is likely part of the reason why nine in 10 of the leading causes of death in the US are related to or worsened by dysregulated blood sugar levels. And it's mostly preventable. Um, but it means moving away from the factors of our Western lifestyle that hijack our core physiologic processes that are required for every cell in our body to function. And that's our metabolic processes. And so I really refocused my clinical energy into thinking about how to help patients make better choices, healthier decisions that would ultimately lead to foundational metabolic health and how to do it at scale. And, um, you know, I mean, I think it was sort of those days in the operating room where I'd be, like I said, sucking pus out of the sinus or cutting a cancer out, you know, and there it's this very brute force thing. And you kind of are, you know, feel like a, 
you're supposed to feel like a hero for doing this, but I feel like what is more heroic in medicine is actually truly changing a patient's physiology to make them fundamentally healthier. Um, and so, you know, healthcare costs are going up. We're spending $4 trillion on healthcare per year. Um, it's, well, that, that doesn't matter though, because we just print more dollars. <laughs> right. It's totally easy. Yeah, although the costs are there. the costs are going up each year, so we're going to have to be printing a lot of dollars. And you know, we're getting sicker, fatter, and more depressed. And I thought, I'm a doctor, I'm a leader in this healthcare system, and it is not working. And in face of that, if you're not stepping back and asking why then what are you you doing? So I moved away from the operating room. I started my own functional medicine private practice. I started a company. I co-founded a company called Levels with four incredible co-founders. And what Levels does is help people optimize their blood sugar and personalize their diet through a biowearable called a continuous glucose monitor and really get a sense of where they stand on the metabolic health spectrum and learn to eat and live in a way that does not push them down the spectrum of blood sugar dysregulation and metabolic dysfunction. And long-term, my hope is that by empowering people with personal data and the ability to understand in real time with closed loop biofeedback, how their food and lifestyle choices are affecting their health, their health, we will ultimately help move towards a healthier population, keep people out of the operating room and as a secondary effect, totally change the way in which um, we're able to be influenced and I would say manipulated by the food industry because objective data just rapidly cuts through food marketing. So that's my journey from surgery to to metabolic health and fundamentally comes down to how to be more proactive um, in healthcare, create healthy bodies um, in the United States, and to empower people with agency to make better decisions. They... <clears throat> I don't think most people would really make that connection between inflammation and metabolic health and ENT, but maybe I'm I'm a little wrong about that. About 20 years ago, I saw a, a doctor who isn't practicing anymore, uh, who was a former Johns Hopkins ENT surgeon who noticed the same thing you did. Hmm, my patients don't get better after I clean out their sinuses. They just come back in two years. And I was days away from sinus surgery because I'd had 15 years of chronic sinusitis that was inflammation-based and I saw this guy and he said, well, I don't do surgery anymore. It didn't work. So I did this, I did this. And he had just launched the world's first liposomal glutathione because he was looking at metabolic activities 20 years ago saying, well, I think toxins are a big part of this. So we've got to get inflammation down by getting some of the toxins out. So people use this and no, it doesn't taste good, but it works. Right. And it, so you're kind of following in a rich tradition of saying, I wanted my patients to get and stay better. It wasn't working. So let's do something different. But it takes guts, Casey, to do that because surgeons are highly paid. And, you know, your colleagues probably don't like it when you say, hey, let's fix it at the root cause. Not because they're bad people, just because like, this is how you fix it. What do you mean? That's not how you fix it. Did you get a lot of, a lot of shit from your classmates in med school for doing this? I got a lot of quizzical looks, I would say. Um, I definitely had people ask me if I was going crazy. Um, you know, nine years of postgraduate training, tens of thousands of hours with a knife in my hand, um, staring down the barrel of a long career of steady income, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it comes down to the fact that, like, 
you have one life to live and, and, and it's all about impact. Um, you know, you can, you can go by the book, but frankly, you know, practicing just like guidelines based medicine, like it wasn't stimulating and it wasn't really fulfilling to me and nothing gets me more excited than, you know, critical thinking, independent thought, looking at systems issues. And often that means you're a contrarian. But the fun thing is that when you join the contrarian community, uh, you join a community of really amazing people, um, people like yourself um, and, you know, many other trailblazers, which, you know, I'm proud to say uh, most of the levels advisory board is people who have, have had a very similar um, path to me. You know, people like Mark Hyman, Sarah Gottfried, Molly Maloof, David Perlmutter, Ben Bickman, Dom D'Agostino, Rob Lustig, um, who have taken on the system yeah. and challenged things. And and to be able to like call these people colleagues now is the greatest joy of my my life because you're pushing the system forward and trying to really have the best possible impact. And you know, it actually it was pretty simple and straightforward for me because I think once you get into this once you start going into the the root cause world, which I would call call also like in fancy in the fancier science lingo, it's like the systems and network biology world. Yep, that's like all if, it is. <laughs> if you say functional medicine, everyone's going to roll their eyes and say it's pseudoscience. If you say systems and network biology, all of a sudden it's like you know it's fine to say. And the reality is they're the same. They're the same thing. Um, systems and network biology being, you know, right now in in, in regular practice, we look at someone who has obesity early dementia, arthritis, uh, benign prostatic hypertrophy, um, you know, all these different, and we say, oh, these are all different things. We're going to prescribe a different pill for each of this. They're IBS, something different. They're depression, something different. And we play whack-a-mole medicine. Systems and network biology looks at what are the physiologic links between each of these diseases on the cellular level? And what Uh if that were, we then put that up on a whiteboard and drew these links between these different diseases of that physiology. And then what if we treated at that level, at the link? And that's what happened to me. And it literally was on a whiteboard. I remember looking at a paper, I think it was in JAMA, of all the cytokines that were upregulated in the nasal mucosa of a sinus patient. Yeah. And it was like TNF-alpha, interleukin-6. And I'm like, huh, all of these cytokines are the exact same ones that are upregulated in obesity and heart disease and diabetes. And that Venn diagram is the connection between these, these diseases. And we know that dietary and lifestyle choices change the levels of these cytokines. Also, this was many years ago, but now we've learned with COVID that it's the same cytokines that are upregulated that worsen the cytokine storm. Uh, attention, attention. <laughs> we must bleep out the, the C word that was mentioned here. It's okay. You can say it. We'll just make sure we bleep it out <laughs> because it is not okay to mention that which shall not be named because they are now blocking shows. They have now taken, they've deleted videos with more than a million views from my channel without telling me because they had the C word. And that's not the one with the NT at the end of it. It was the other one. So what we do, you can say it, but just so you know, there'll be a every time you say it um, on the show. And Chris, make sure that this part is actually left in the show, obviously, so that our <laughs> listeners know why there's a It's not that Casey's swearing, it's that she's speaking the truth, which shall not be spoken. I was so, going to say, what about the most popular virus? Right. And uh, so this is this yeah. is what you got. I mean, you, you really have to just get the marker out for yourself, create the Venn diagrams, and then realize there's something missing in the way we're treating things here. Um, And once that cat's out of the bag, you know, two metaphors here, but the genie's not going back in the bottle. Um, And so, yeah, so it actually was a fairly simple choice for me. And 
um, you know, I tend to have an abundance mindset and, and not really worry about, you know, uh, if you're following your North star, I believe things will work out and they have, which has been great. Uh, well, I appreciate that you're doing that. And especially in a world where people are looking for ways to be hard to kill and more resilient. It's funny that if you reduce inflammatory markers, like IL-6 is my personal favorite uh, inflammatory cytokine. And I wrote a well-referenced paper two weeks into the, uh, into the government response to a popular uh, uh, virus I didn't say anything I shouldn't say uh, about IL-6. And I was actually ordered by the government to take it down. <laughs> so yes, we live in that world. Uh, but uh, your point there that, huh, the sinuses have this, it's inflammation. Obesity has this, it's inflammation. But isn't that because like we're breathing stuff we're allergic to? Or is there a metabolic connection between these cytokines? I'm kind of leaving the question. I don't know the answer, but tell me what you think. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's 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 uh, both of them, to be honest. Is there a metabolic connection between these cytokines? I'm kind of leaving the question. I don't know the answer, but tell me what you think. <laughs> yeah, I think it's 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 uh, both of them, to be honest. I mean, there's the, the way I really think about it is that the metabolic pathways are sort of like a centralizing factor that um, take in a lot of different multivariate inputs and can become dysfunctional via lots of different things. Um, and so some of the things we have to think about that are hijacking our core meta metabolic processes are things like the standard American diet and processed carbohydrates and sugar, which I would lump under the term chronic overnutrition, causing you know mitochondrial oxidative stress, essentially too much work for our energy factories, leading to uh, us not being able to produce energy properly and storing more fat. But it's also, I would say, six other things. It's, it's chronic stress and the impact of cortisol on our cellular biology. It's, it's getting poor quality sleep, both less sleep than we should be getting, but also interrupted sleep. It's sedentary behavior and lack of physical activity, which puts strain on the body. It is environmental toxins like persistent organic pollutants in our food, water, and air, all of which can be mitochondrial disruptors. And it's a nutrient-poor diet. Um, and we know that, you know, aside from the chronic overnutrition, um, it's the dearth of micronutrients in our diet which serve as locks yeah. and keys for all those little enzymes in the electron electron transport chain of the mitochondria. Um, all of these things essentially features of our Western lifestyle gum up the metabolic system and make it not work properly. So it's not that it's just about food. It's that it's that metabolism because it's such a core pathway. You know, we have 37 trillion cells in the body, 37 trillion human cells, many, many more bacterial cells. And each one of those 37 trillion cells needs energy to function properly. And so, you know, by, by hijacking these processes with those, those things that I just mentioned, um, you can see dysfunction in any cell type depending on where that shows up. And so that's why metabolic dysfunction can sometimes be really sneaky because it has so many faces based on where this core dysfunction is sort of showing up most prominently in the body. If it's showing up in the vessels of the penis, it could look like erectile dysfunction. If it's showing up in the ovaries, it could be polycystic ovarian syndrome. If it's showing up in the brain, it could be depression, anxiety, Alzheimer's, fibromyalgia, um, brain fog, chronic pain. 
all things that have been linked yep. to metabolic dysfunction. Of course, if it's happening in the bigger blood vessels of the body, it could be stroke or heart disease. If it's in the skin, it could be psoriasis or acne. It's incredible. Um, and it's, you know, again, it's just, there's so many factors that go into this, but the beauty of all those factors that affect metabolism is that we have so many levers to pull in terms of writing the ship and the body is so resilient and adaptable that it can generally always move in the right direction when conditions are different. So the onus is on us as the individual to change those levers, to pull those levers under the guidance perhaps of a doctor or an app. But fundamentally, um, health does not come from a doctor's appointment. And it also doesn't come from an app. It comes from the actual choice you're making. It comes from what's on the tip of your fork um, It's or what the time is when you go to bed. And so what my passion really is, is to help people um, understand their bodies well enough and be inspired um, with good information from their body to be able to make those decisions consistently and feel excited and motivated to do that. It's, uh, it's been my dream that we would get large numbers of biohackers, and that's kind of the early adopters of levels, but you've got tons of people who aren't biohackers now, just some people who are interested in improving their metabolic function for a whole bunch of different reasons. It, but it's been my dream that we get that, first we would get it from movement and sleep sensors and things like that, unlike the Aura Ring. But to be able to say, what are the behaviors that cause desired results? Because we have all these myths we've believed in society, like, oh, exercise a lot and eat a low-calorie diet, right? Well, I sure believed in that myth enough to work out six days a week, an hour and a half a day uh, for a year and a half on a low-calorie diet, and I still weighed 300 pounds and had a 46-inch waist, and I was strong, right? But it didn't do it. So how many myths is every person listening to the show believing and some of them are media myths, control and manipulation from big tobacco. I mean, big food. Sorry, I get them confused. Sometimes. Should we talk about the heart on the Cheerios uh, box? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so we, we go down that path, right? And one of my goals uh, was, hey, I would like to disrupt big food. And that was the whole message was bulletproof, how you feel after you eat is most important. And now I'm going after some of our exercise myths and our recovery myths with Upgrade Labs. And what I'm looking at here is it's always at the core is about metabolism. It's about inflammation. And so we can fix those. But I have things that I believe work because I've seen a bunch of studies, but I don't have 100,000 people telling me what they're eating every single day and then showing me as a result their blood sugar levels so that you can do two things. And I'm hoping you've done the second one here. And this is what I want to dig into with you. The first thing you do is say, well, okay, if the average person eats you know, ice cream, their blood sugar goes up this much. And you go, oh, that's weird. Most people, it goes up this much, but some people, it goes up crazy, and some people can eat ice cream like no one's business. Now, you don't have data to know why there's a difference in those people. But what you can also do is you can say, over the course of one year, people who eat these types of things tend to have an average decline or increase. in blood. So long-term inflammation and metabolic stuff, you're getting from your data set even if an individual has a hard time being able to use that for their own data, but the feedback loop that goes to everyone goes to the learning of the world from levels is really big. So you guys have been running long enough, I think, to get some trends that are from all of us, not just from one person. What have you picked up? What do you know? What did you learn that we didn't know before? Mm. Well, 
I think so. so the, the answer is yes. It's been you know since you last talked to Josh, you know, on uh, my co-founder on on the last podcast, we have a lot more data, and it is pretty exciting to think about the impact of this enormous data set. And so, just to kind of give an overview of what the data we're looking at, so. Amongst our levels beta members, we have 1.3 million food logs, 51 million glucose data points, and 128 million health data points of any kind. So this is a gigantic, gigantic data set of what's happening in response to um, these 1.3 million food logs across a large population. And this is actually just 16,000 people who have experienced levels so far in our closed beta program. Doesn't account for the 155,000 people on our wait list. So you can just imagine how enormous these numbers are going to be. Tell me about the wait list. Uh, like I know because people listen to this show, if you use levels.link slash Dave, you go there, you get to the front of the line. But that was a hell of a big line. Like, like when, do, when, when do you shorten the line? Oh. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we are working hard towards that. Um, but to be able to really open up those floodgates, um, you know, there there are a couple things that need to be true. I mean, certainly we want we have been working tirelessly to refine the pro- refine the product experience so that it's going to be the most useful and valuable product experience for people when they actually do get access to levels um, and re- have released over a thousand versions of our app in the past year and a half to to accommodate that feedback and then also. Um, you know, the the supply chain of getting the sensors to people. Like this is still a new field of people without diabetes using continuous glucose monitors. So there's there's sort of this ramp up period in terms of um, getting these sensors to people. So I think very soon we'll be able to open those doors um, to everyone. Um, and uh, we're very excited for that. But in terms of the in the, in terms of getting to your question, which is what have we learned? Um, something that I find really fun is to look at the top fifty worst and the top fifty best foods in the entire levels oh, data set. I wanted to get to the worst foods. I love this. Oh my gosh! Okay, what, well, what are the ones you found? A lot of the worst scoring foods are things you would probably expect. So things like. I'll start with sort of the obvious one. So Chick-fil-A, when people log the word Chick-fil-A, they have a huge glucose spike. Pad Thai, McDonald's, donuts, dim sum, fried rice, apple pie, Coca-Cola. None of that is really surprising. These are processed foods or... cinnamon and apple pie and cinnamon fixes your blood sugar. What? A hundred percent. It totally offsets that, you know, a cup and a half of sugar and the refined flour and the apples. Um, just that 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 eighth teaspoon I'm sorry, of cinnamon. I, I, I accidentally put on my Instagram influencer hat there. <laughs> um, cinnamon extract in relatively large amounts um, may lower blood sugar a little bit. I've seen it on on my things, but it needs to be an extract of cinnamon or so much cinnamon that it's probably kidney or liver stressful. And you should pair it with some other things like chromium and vanadium if you really want to smack yourself in the face with sugar without paying for it. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's no question the physiology is real of, mm-hmm. of cinnamon, um, and I think it's it's Ceylon cinnamon that the, it's the one yeah. that's best for yeah yeah and and you know capsule form is sometimes good, but I always dump you know like two teaspoons of cinnamon in a smoothie um, oh, to get a little bit of that. I thought so. you had to do lines of it. I've been doing it wrong. <laughs> I'm a bad person. No, no Kids, comment. Kids, I have uh, no idea what that means. Um. So. One of the <laughs> speaking of cinnamon, other cinnamony foods. So um, we one 
really common thing we saw was that breakfast foods often, which sometimes you have cinnamon like pastries were a huge amount of the 50 worst scoring foods. So these are words that are on the top 50 list, which is of course like all the things that people are getting at brunch um, and are probably being served in school cafeterias. But it was pancakes, French toast, waffle, bagel and cream cheese, bagel, scone, pastry, overnight oats, and Cheerios. So that's like a large percentage of top 50 worst foods. Oatmeal. And Can we talk about oatmeal? Oatmeal, it's the yes. stupidest thing on the planet. Oh, I'm having my oatmeal to be healthy. Like, dude, eat the pancakes. Like, they're equally bad for you. Oatmeal isn't even that good. Or at least make oatmeal cookies. Like, it's stupid, and it has gluten in it anyway. So I've always been anti-oatmeal, and it makes all, like, the, the crunchy, unshowered, like, plant-based people who are very weak, it makes them very angry. And a few yeah. of them have like broken their wrists trying to punch me in the arm just because of their lack of bone density that came from their oatmeal. This is the beauty of objective data. You can't fight with it. <laughs> you know, that box, that, that Quaker Oats box says great source of whole grains, high in fiber, heart healthy. I feel so good about that. I, yeah. So, oh my God, my doctor said to eat this and I will tell you my own personal data. Yeah. I we we do a lot of experience experiments at levels. I took two of those little packets of plain unsweetened, not the apple pie version, plain unsweetened rolled oats, put them in a mug, you know, put them in the microwave. It ends up making like eight spoons worth of oatmeal. It's so tiny. My glucose went up 80 points. Which, you know, for reference, I really never want my glucose to go above about 20 or 30 points after a meal. And when it went up 80 points, it came crashing down and of course led to that sort of reactive hypoglycemia dip after the meal when I felt totally crummy and fatigued and had cravings. And because we know that glucose swings, otherwise known as glycemic variability, is an independent predictor of developing diabetes, heart disease, and stroke, for me, there is no way that those oats are heart healthy. And so what's on the box is not true for me. And that data shows me that. So that is not to say, you know, no one should eat oats, to be honest. Some people respond differently. But there's a couple things that you can keep in mind here. One is that groats or steel cut oats are likely going to do better than overnight, you know, instant oats or rolled oats or something like that. The second thing is... um, you can, you know, you can add additional fiber, fat, and protein to the oats to make them have less of an impact. If I were going to eat oatmeal, I would literally dump chia seeds and flax seeds on top of it, put some walnuts. Do you like um, omega-6 oil for your metabolism and phytic acid to remove micronutrients? Oh, gosh. And you like lectins? Oh, gosh. Hold on. Where'd you go to mess? Oh, oh Stanford. Oh, I'm a chia. I'm a chia fanatic. I hate to say it. Do you leave soakum first? I, you know, I do, when you put them in the oatmeal, like they'll, they'll bulk up a little bit because of the as moisture. As long as they're hydrated. I, I can see to you of all the stuff on that list, but you are looking at omega-6s through the nose and the walnuts. There are, there are longevity well, studies supporting walnuts, but I kind of go back and forth on that one. And, you know, uh, chia seeds are the, the, from what I understand, the dominant thing you're going to get in that is alpha linoleic acid. So an upstream omega-3. And, you know, I think the certainly, of course, the plant-based omega-3s are not going to be as effective for the anti-inflammatory or the structural properties as the downstream omega-3s like EPA and DHA. No yeah. question. But something that I found really interesting, and actually the Genova Nutrivel test has helped me really appreciate 
this is that, you know, so you get to EPA and DHA from ALA, this upstream omega-3 converting. With 45 to 1 ratio. It takes a lot of work to make that. But it takes 5 to 10 micronutrients in each of the enzymes to get from ALA to EPA. And I think a lot of people are deficient in those micronutrients. Well said. There yeah. you go. That that's the vegan problem is that the the all the plants with their oxalic acid and their phytates inhibit the micronutrients that you needed to make EPA yes. and DHA if you could, uh, which is uh, which is really cool. So I was just teasing about putting that in there. But I have to ask you, what if instead you just said, you know what, I'm going to put a half a stick of butter in my oats. Yeah, and I mean that's an option too. There's different, definitely different ways to get fat. Um, you know, protein that and would fiber. lower the glycemic index, though, right? It would lower the impact of the oats on yeah. your glucose for sure. There's so many other things you could do. You could you could eat protein before the oats. You could take a 30-minute walk after the oats. And we have a great experiment that we did with our members about taking walks after meals. And we can talk about that as well. Um, but, you know, it's basically like them by themselves, not heart healthy. I would greatly recommend a savory non-oat breakfast. And actually, when we get to the best scoring foods, some of the breakfasts in that list are really what I think we should be focusing on, not just hacking oats, but actually moving towards a nutrient-rich you know, breakfast that isn't spiking glucose. But there's ways you can modulate it with some additions and walking. And I mean, people could take an apple cider vinegar shot beforehand, but um, why not yeah. You know, eat the free-range eggs and um, you know, avocado or the frittata or the chia pudding. Well, you know, we can maybe disagree about chia pudding. <laughs> you can but- say chia. It's <laughs> another one of the C words that we're allowed to say. But those were those were types of <laughs> breakfasts that were on the top ten best foods uh, for glucose spikes. So, okay. um, yeah. Well, before we move into like the really good breakfast foods, right? You, you talked about French toast. Yes. Now, there's a company that I'm working with called Uprising Foods that makes a zero carb bread. And I've always thought French toast is going to be better than regular toast because it's got an egg on there. And if you cook it in butter, now it's got enough fat and enough protein that as long as you don't put a bunch of syrup or you use a syrup with all you or something in it, that you can actually have French toast that is far better for you than oatmeal and still tastes like French toast. So I guess there's, there's a, a variety of stuff you can do in there. Um, but is French toast better than pancakes and better than oatmeal or is it worse? Because I'm just hoping the egg would help. Yeah, I imagine the egg would help because it has protein okay. and fat. And there's actually been studies showing that if you eat an egg before you eat carb-rich foods, you have a lower glycemic response. But at the end of the day, it's it's not just about getting a flat glucose line. That is not the definition of optimal health. We're yeah. trying to push people towards with this type of metabolic awareness that Levels provides is not how to game the glucose curve, but how to build a body that is metabolically healthy. And those are two different things. Um, because just gaming the glucose curve, I mean, you could chug canola oil and get a flat glucose line. But to build a metabolically healthy body, it means tapping into nutrient-rich foods, um, avoiding things with refined carbohydrates and sugars, um, you know, getting the... Uh, getting rid of the environmental toxins, the persistent organic pollutants, getting the sleep, managing the stress, doing the exercise, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's not just about, okay, well, the, the French toast with the egg is better because really the question is, what is that French toast doing for your cellular biology? And that's that's the question that I'm asking with any type of food is, how is it supporting my, my pathways that lead to yeah. health? Because symptoms and diseases are a manifestation of dysfunctional cellular biology and food is what in large part determines that. So with that French toast, I mean, you're getting 
refined grains, minimal nutrients, you know, some water, some egg. It's not exactly like the optimal breakfast. So, um, yeah. yeah. So there, there are um, a few, I'm just going to call them online angry calorie bullies who will still tell you that having a diet soda and a Snickers bar is the same thing as eating a snake. In fact, it's better, or steak or snake, <laughs> uh, because it's, it's better for you because it has less calories, right? What do you have from a data perspective that makes those people look like douchebags? Because they actually are. I mean, I think not a loaded question or anything. Not at all. No. And I would push them to, you know, David Lovegood's most recent paper from Harvard out a month ago. Him. Yeah. I mean, he's incredible. The carbohydrate insulin model of obesity moving away. Oops. Yeah. Like just if we want to follow the science, you know, go to go to this paper and take a look. And man, that paper was great because what it highlighted was the key point of of why the calorie in calorie model out model is flawed, which is that different, and I know I'm just preaching to the choir here um, with everyone listening, but uh, calories affect hormones and hormones are what really dictate the results of what's going on inside our bodies. And so a calorie that stimulates insulin release or causes oxidative stress is very different from a calorie that does neither of those things. A calorie that stimulates the NF-kappa-B uh, inflammatory pathway, genetic pathway, or a calorie that doesn't has a very different effect on our overall health. And so um, it's it's not just the carbohydrate insulin model. It's also like, what's it actually doing to our genetic expression? What's it doing to the structural composition of our body? I mean, omega-6 fat and omega-3 fat probably has the same calorie, but like which one is actually going to build cell membranes that help us think and feel better and thrive? So that's how I would you know, think about that. Yeah, I I think you're right. It it takes a special kind of like arrogance uh, in order to uh, in order to just continue saying these things that just aren't true at at all. And and so maybe one day, like the the guys who are still out there harming people with poor nutritional advice, maybe they'll get therapy or something. Do you have hope for those people? Maybe if they got blood glucose monitors, would they start eating more calories and feeling better? You know, I think I do feel that that most people out there doing this stuff are good intentioned and are, are, are sharing what they know or what their personal experience is. The reality is, is that there's people out there who have done calorie restriction and who have lost weight and felt better. And that's, that's great for, for them. It's not the answer to our public health crisis that is ravaging our, our country of metabolic disease. Um, because really the science shows that calorie restriction does not work over the long term. Mm-hmm. And the mechanism of that is because it doesn't actually uh, fundamentally impact the the hormones that are related to, to weight. So, you know, and you would see it on, on a levels monitor, right? It's someone who's restricting calories when they do eat, they're going to get a big glucose spike because they haven't figured out that it's what they eat. That's changing the, the changing the metabolism, right? Yeah. I mean, and you could also be on a calorie restricted diet and if you're spiking, so there's two different ways to approach a calorie restricted diet. One that would, I think would work well for weight loss and one that wouldn't. If your calorie restricted diet is spiking your glucose each meal that you eat, it's going to be much harder to lose weight. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is what's so beautiful about monitoring is that you can really take almost any dietary strategy. And if you want that to be calorie restriction, go right ahead. Um, Actually, in a lot of ways, I feel like 
calorie restriction with a continuous glucose monitor and an eye for insulin and glucose would be a lot easier because what you'd probably be leaning on more is higher fat, higher protein foods. So you'd actually be more satiated. Um, yeah. You'd be less miserable and you'd be less likely to uh, go on Twitter when your brain is out of control and just like be a douche. I totally get it. And we know that the, after the glucose spike, the, the reactive dip is exactly when we feel cravings. That has been studied. So it kind of sounds like hell to me to be on a calorie-restricted diet with high glucose spikes because you're basically hungry, not only because you're calorie-restricted, but also yeah. because you're crashing and you're hungrier. So, you're like hangry all the time. Yeah. Okay, do Levels users report in on stuff like hangriness and hypoglybitchiness, like their, the quality of their mood? Because I've noticed massive shifts in myself when I learned how to eat and I have blood sugar going all over the place. <laughs> What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. I, I've noticed massive shifts in myself when I learned how to eat and I have blood sugar going all over the place. There's no question. And we don't, we are not collecting that data in sort of an okay. empirical way right now. But if you if people go to our levelshealth.com slash blog and look at our member stories, it's it's all over. We, we publish at least one member story a week. The way I think about it is that Glycemic variability, ups and down swings in glucose, translates to ups and down swings in the subjective experience of our day, whether that's energy, mood lability, you know, anxiety, brain fog, mental clarity. I think one of the biggest life hacks, it sounds like you've had this experience as well, is when you, like you said, learn to eat. Um, and in doing so are keeping to these more gentle rolling hills of glucose, not these huge spikes and crashes, it totally stabilizes your experience of the world in many ways. And I mean, it's not like the cure for low energy or, you know, anxiety, but it certainly takes away one variable. It's totally the cure for anxiety. If your anxiety was coming from chronic lack of energy, and that was one of the things, I had chronic fatigue syndrome. I had the brain fog thing and you get anxiety from feeling like shit all the time. And so like you can fix that just by learning, oh, look, I didn't spike and crash. Well, let me ask you this. Can you feel high blood sugar? Oh, absolutely. How do you feel? How does it feel when your blood sugar is high? I know we can all feel low blood sugar, but but what does high blood sugar feel like? So for me, high blood sugar feels a little bit like an uncomfortable floaty sensation, um, like sort of like I'm a little bit out of it and feel I'm starting to feel anxious. Um, and I think I would not have re recognized that had I not had a glucose monitor because one of the beauties of being able to link subjectively how you're feeling with objective data is that we cut through misattribution. We can attribute a phenomenon to the subjective feeling. So instead of saying, 
am I just an anxious person? Or is this from the coffee I had? Or is this because I had lack of sleep? Or is this because the email I just got? I can say, oh no, it's because my glucose is 170 and it hasn't been in three weeks. And so now I can start to create a one-to-one relationship between how I'm feeling and what the data is. And that is power. That means that we can start to make different um, select choices to start modulating our experience of the day. Um, and this is a concept that we call um, interoception, glucose interoception, interoception being the ability to feel what's going on inside your body. So we often talk about interoception with things like uh-huh. heartbeat. Um, and it's fascinating. People who have a, to do a better job of feeling their heartbeat. And what this might look like is sitting still, closing your eyes and trying to just feel your heartbeat in different parts of your body, your neck, your chest, your fingertips, your toes. People who can do that reliably have better cardiac outcomes. And this is not surprising to me because when you have awareness, when you're stopping to have really in tune with the inner workings of your body and that body awareness, I think there's lots of different effects of that. Probably better you know, you're more in tune with what's going on. Um, and so therefore you can modulate, you know, your behavior, but I think this is possible with glucose as well. And, um, you, we certainly on, aside from glucose being high feeling that you can, I think definitely feel when glucose is low. Cause that has some pronounced symptoms of hypoglycemia, which can be like shakiness, jitteriness, um, fatigue, anxiety, uh, et cetera. So being aware of that is nice and, and using the objective data to really refine that awareness because then when you don't have the monitor on, you can start to clue in to really how food is affecting how you feel. It's so cool that you can describe that. And I'm uh, with the Upgrade Collective members around, a lot of them saying, yeah, kind of floaty, spacey, a carb high. I have never felt high blood sugar. Mm. And I don't normally get up to 180 though. I probably could get up there, but I'd have to like really do sugar on an empty stomach. I don't go above like 150, 155 the vast majority of the time. That's so um, good. But I don't feel it. And it drives me nuts because I'm really good. I, I mean, I do all this neurofeedback and biofeedback and I can heat up my hand. You know, there, there's cool, you know, pet tricks you can do with your biology. Uh, but that one, uh, I, I'm how did I not know it was at 150? Uh, I mean, I could predict it because I ate the grapes from my grapevines or whatever, uh, another high glycemic food. But uh, it, it's so cool. You can feel it. I'm, I'm curious. Do you hear that from a lot of, of users that they learn how to feel high versus low blood sugar? We definitely do hear that. And I think Molly Maloof is one of the people who has actually talked a lot about this this publicly, this sort of concept yeah. that you can you can sort of tune into this. But I think probably it's possible one of the reasons you don't you're not feeling it is because you're not going super, super high. Um and we actually did this experiment. It was the walking experiment that I was alluding to earlier, um, where we had levels members and employees drink a can of Coca-Cola and then and obviously this is a group of people who like do not drink soda normally. So this was, you know, this is a glucose company. So they drink a can of Coca-Cola and then the next day or days later, um, ideally under the same conditions, like same amount of sleep, same amount of exercise, drink the exact same can of soda and then walked for 30 minutes to two hours afterwards. And we looked at the changes in glucose responses. But before we did this, we actually were sending people oral glucose tolerance test drinks. So 70 oh, horrible. Oh, they are terrible. It's and like it's crap when I do this. I don't do them anymore. It's called glucola and it's a 75 gram of um glucose drink that we give to pregnant women um for the oral glucose tolerance test. And we so two people in the company did the experiment first and we had shipped them to everyone in the company. 
we actually had to stop the experiment <laughs> because I'm, this is not a joke because the two employees could not work for the rest of the day. Yeah, because they it's felt ruinous. So That's why I won't do happy. it. And yeah. the direct quote um, was from from one of our team members. I was super shaky, sweaty hands, blurred vision, had to lay down in bed immediately, sent this out via Slack. We're like, did we just poison one of our <laughs> team members? Like, And we actually had to stop the experiment because the glucose had such a profound effect on how we felt. And we switched to Coke because it was kind of a little bit more gentle um, of a rise. But um, even the average glucose peak in that experiment with one can of soda, one can, which uh, I believe 65% of people under 19 are drinking at least one can of soda a day, that sent people's blood glucose on average to 162 milligrams per deciliter, just one can of Coke. And, um, and that I certainly felt, I was like, oh, you know, and so, um, but that just goes to show like these drinks that were, that have 75 grams of glucose are, are making people feel so bad that they actually couldn't work. So. And incredible that the same people can go to, and I'm not going to pick on Starbucks. Starbucks did make everyone pay attention to the quality of their coffee. So thank you, Starbucks. But the current iteration of Starbucks that has a lot to do with, um, with like 31 flavors, Baskin Robbins, there's one drink with more than 120 mm-hmm. grams of sugar, I think, but it does have some fat granted It's all omega six fat, uh, and maybe a little bit of protein, but, um, that is actually worse, but is it, is it the caffeine and a little bit of fat that means people can actually function on that much sugar? Because for me, I would I would be disabled. I I don't even know what I would say on social media if I if I drank one of those and was you know, tweeting. I think it also may be a bit of a tolerance thing, you know, yeah. that that people kind of get used to that. Uh, it's like how if you're not eating sugar regularly and you eat something sweet, it tastes really yucky. I mean, I, at this point, don't yeah. really like super sweet things. I used to love milk chocolate. And now if I eat milk chocolate, it tastes very unnatural to me. I want the 88% or 100% oh. 95 and And so I think it's it's sort of in that realm of like, um, if you're used to that feeling and now it's tied up in your dopamine and your dopaminergic reward pathways in like a very hardwired way, that subjective feeling is going to be very different than if you're sort of um, naive to that. Okay, that makes sense. Talk to me about dark chocolate. Um, this has been one of my go-to snacks, something I recommended forever. Uh, what do you see if it's 85% or higher for from a blood sugar perspective at levels? Um, well, I can certainly say it's not in our worst scoring foods. Um, it's also not in our best scoring foods. So it's probably somewhere in the middle. For me personally, if I eat 88% chocolate or above, I have no glucose response. So um, that's going to be generally those bars have three grams of added sugar. So it is added sugar per serving. Um, usually the bar is three servings. So if I eat a third of the bar, um, nothing. So that I, So that's a great option, I think, for people who really do have a chocolate hankering. Um, is like the eighty-eight percent or ninety-two percent. Okay, that's uh, that's pretty high. Most people will um, will still eat that. One of the advantages of getting above ninety is that if you leave it on your desk, no one will eat it. <laughs> I love that. I I remember when I was doing this a long time ago. I worked for a company in the UK, and I had some eighty-five or ninety percent uh, with me. And I offered it to people in the, in the room. And the CEO of the company takes a bite and like spits it out on the table. And yeah, you know, it's like, ah, what what are you doing to me? Trying to kill me? Yeah, I'm like, yeah, this uh, terrible so bitter object. Oh, I got to eat all of the chocolate. I didn't feel bad. Uh, what if people go down to like seventy-two? A lot of the dark chocolates are around seventy-two to seventy-eight percent. 
You know, I I would strongly guess. I don't know. I don't know the actual data on this, but I would guess it's a linear relationship between the numbers uh, and the glucose spike. So an inversely proportional relationship. I bet as you go down, you get a slightly bigger bump in the in the glucose response. Um, so. Yeah definitely an experiment worth trying and maybe like pushing the envelope on like how low, how low can I go with the percentages and not have really any glucose response. And maybe if I put a little almond butter on it, does it, does it blunt it a little bit more? Now this is where it, it gets interesting because there are some people um, who, who actually write some interesting stuff. Uh, you know, there, there's a variety of perspectives out there and I, I do my best to listen to all of them and kind of pick what I, what works and try the stuff that doesn't. But there are people who say, look, it's normal for your blood sugar to go up after a meal. As long as it comes down within two hours and it didn't go up too high to cause advanced glycation, who really cares? Mm. What do you think about that? Yeah. So there's a few <laughs> Not things. Not very here. much like you <laughs> But keep going. I have very few thoughts on this topic. Um, no. So, uh, so really, I think the way there's a couple frameworks to think about this in. One is that a lot of that ideology is based on this false premise in the American healthcare system that, um, that health and disease are binary things. So that we are non-diabetic until our fasting blood sugar is uh, 126 and we are diabetic when it's above 126. And that, that's because the diagnostic criteria say that. And so we don't have a problem before at 124, but we do have a problem at 126. That's not the way biology works biology is a spectrum that we are constantly moving forward and backward on, especially when it comes to metabolic health. And so, so really that black and white light switch thing makes us think that we don't need to worry about these things until we have fulminant disease and meet diagnostic criteria, which is one of the biggest problems of why we are just absolutely failing in our chronic disease epidemic. Um, this is why a lot of you might go to the doctor and say, hey, um, I'd really love to use continuous glucose monitoring because I, I want to get on top of my blood sugar. And their doctor may laugh at them and say, you don't have diabetes. I'm not going to give you a continuous glucose monitor. But how strange is that, that we'd wait until someone has an actual disorder before we let them monitor the thing when these conditions are preventable, <laughs> largely preventable. And the idea is like, if you could learn to eat properly 20, 30 years before you go into the doctor's office and get that bomb dropped on you and could monitor these things, then you would not reach that. I can say with almost a hundred percent certainty that if I'm monitoring my glucose over the course of my lifetime, not necessarily a sensor on every single day, but like wearing a sensor maybe once a year. And if I keep my glucose, if I eat properly, keep my glucose in, in range. What's I in never, range mean? Um, seeing, seeing that my fasting glucose isn't going up over time, making sure that, you know, my, my average glucose is staying, um, below a hundred, um, making sure that when I wake up, my fasting glucose is in the seventies and eighties and not creeping up towards 90 or a hundred. If I can do that year after year, and keep it that way through my choices, I will never walk into the doctor's office and have them drop a bomb on me about type 2 diabetes because I've been yeah. tracking it. And that is power. You know, I just, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable to me to think of a patient walking in, nervously cut, clutching their handbag, waiting for this, this news when we have tools that let them know that information for themselves and impact it. It's just such a strange power dynamic. Um, so, Getting back to sort of this, the question about what would people say this stuff, the thing I would point them to is the fact that 
glycemic variability, which is the ups and downs swings in glucose, which are primarily driven by our dietary choices. Glycemic variability is ultimately what pushes us towards metabolic dysfunction and insulin resistance. Each of those repeated spikes over and over again, sure, our pancreas can release insulin and bring that glucose down. It's doing its job and it's doing it properly. But when you're doing that, big spikes day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade, obviously what ends up developing is insulin resistance. Our cells see too much of the insulin. They end up trying to essentially protect themselves by creating a block, a resistance to insulin. Our body ends up producing Mm. more And then over time, it can't keep up and our blood sugar starts rising. So by keeping, sure, a single glucose spike isn't going to permanently damage you. But if we're doing that over and over again, we are moving down the spectrum of metabolic dysfunction. So logically, why wouldn't we want to keep those glucose spikes down, learn to eat so that we're minimizing those spikes so that we can keep our cells perky to insulin? And the Lancet, Lancet, um, a premier medical journal, uh, did a paper a few years ago that showed that the average person is exhibiting signs of insulin resistance 13 years before their diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. And we're missing those people because we don't actually test for insulin uh, sensitivity in the doctor's office. We don't test fasting insulin. And so an example that I think really helps bring this to light is like, let's say you and I, Dave, both have a fasting glucose of 80 So we both think we're totally fine metabolically. And the doctor would absolutely say, you're doing so great. Well, let's say I'm much more insulin resistant than you. My cells are resistant to insulin. So my body is having to pump out 30 um, of, of insulin to keep that glucose at 80. And you're super insulin sensitive. So your insulin level is two. So mine's 30, yours is two. My body is much more metabolically dysfunctional. And we don't know that. Right mm-hmm. now, we do not know that. And fortunately, we can actually look at our cholesterol test, um, a standard cholesterol panel to kind of get a sense of that. Um, and we don't necessarily need to, go, need to go too much down that road, but the triglyceride uh, to HDL ratio can be a rough, good surrogate marker of our insulin sensitivity. The short version of that to translate it, you want higher HDL and lower triglycerides. For 10 years, the normal response to the Bulletproof diet is a spike in HDL and a drop in triglycerides to change that ratio. Like, like guys, this is very simple stuff, and it's the cheap cholesterol test that your doctor will do for free and then tell you, oh my God, you're going to die. Your cholesterol's high, even though it's the good cholesterol. Totally. And yeah. so so that's a way, if your doctor's not going to order a fasting insulin, um, that's a way to start getting a clue as to whether you're keeping that fasting glucose at 80 because you're super insulin sensitive or because your body's actually overcompensating with hyperinsulinemia in response to insulin resistance. So all of this is to say, it starts way earlier than we're picking up. Most of it is, it is preventable. Reducing glycemic variability improves our chances of not having chronic disease, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, obesity, and all the associated um, diseases. Um, and glucose elevations in its own right, even if you're totally insulin sensitive. Let's say I just eat the two packets of oatmeal and I go to 180 and I decide to do that every day for the next week. That 180 even though I'm metabolically healthy, creates issues. It creates, like you said, advanced glycation end products. It creates oxidative stress. It creates acute inflammation. It creates reactive hypoglycemia, which makes me feel crappy. Um, and, and sort of, 
uh, and of course is an immune depressant. Um, even in a healthy person, glucose going up to 180 is going to cause some transient endothelial dysfunction and 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 uh, reduced you know immune function transiently. So all of that is to say we all need to care about our glucose spikes. Uh, the spike Absolutely. in glucose drops testosterone and drops immunity by something like 40%. So, and the advanced glycation end products, we have a lot of them over time. It causes aging. It's one of the seven pillars of aging in my book. All the Upgrade Collective members are, I just recorded that for you guys yesterday, the, the lecture from chapter two in the book about that. So we, those are definitely real. And your immune function goes down when you have lots of advanced glycation end products. So you don't want lots of big spikes. But I have to push back a little bit mm. on one of the things you said that these chronic spikes in blood sugar are the cause of type 2 diabetes, we, or at least the cause of insulin resistance. Because we see insulin resistance in people who go keto for long periods of time. And, and it's caused by a different mechanism. And I, it's starting to look like long-term intake of high amounts of omega-6 fats, which, by the way, you avoid in my recommendations for a long time. But long-term uh, amounts of those changes the amount of omega-6 in cardiolipin inside the mitochondrial membrane. Sorry to get nerdy, guys. If you're listening to this going, what did you just say? But basically, the energy-producing parts of the cells become insulin-resistant because you're eating a bunch of weird, unnatural seed oils, even if you never eat any sugar. So how important is this type of fat versus eating spikes of sugar in the overall picture of metabolic health? Yeah. So the key thing that I think we have to drill home here is that mitochondrial dysfunction is a root cause of meta metabolic yes. dysfunction. And there are many things that lead to mitochondrial dysfunction. And one of them is repeated glucose spikes and chronic overnutrition. But I mean, glucose okay. spikes are low-hanging fruit. And yes. the sad thing to me is that the sad thing to me is that there are so many people out there trying to do better with nutrition. 50% of Americans go on a diet each year to lose weight. And people actually think they're making really good decisions. And sometimes they're not. And that's not because of lack of effort. It's because of intentional misinformation. And it's because of lack of awareness and closed-loop biofeedback. And this is actually something we saw in our data set. Um, that was fascinating to me, which is that in our best and worst foods, there were things that were of the same category. And you can imagine the person going into the store and saying, oh, I'm going to choose this one over this one, thinking it's the same, but it's actually not. So an example of this is um, we saw that people who got um, a Quest bar or a Bulletproof bar had were in the best Top 50 scoring foods, lowest oh, really? glucose spike. You looked at both? That, no, that's cool. Didn't even look at it. They just are in the top 50. Like it's, oh, just it's people not searching them. for okay. it. Yeah, because they're logging these in the... But Cliff Bar was in the lowest 50 scoring foods. And yeah. I, not, to not to not confuse people, when I say lowest scoring, I mean biggest glycemic impact. So we use a, a score at levels called the zone score, which is a score of 1 to 10. 1 being a really sort of... It's like the bad mark on the report card saying this had a really high glycemic impact on you and like a 10 zone score saying this had minimal impact. And so um, you can imagine the person going to the the bar section of Whole Foods where there's like a hundred different bars and they're like, ooh, these all are probably healthy. So I'm going to grab the Cliff Bar, but they have a 40 point spike in glucose on average versus the Quest Bar, or the Bulletproof Bar, um, which had less than 10. Uh, milligram per deciliter spike. And so both those people are trying to make a healthy choice, but they're unfortunately, because they don't have the data, they're going to get bamboozled by one of those those choices. And we see the same thing with like cereals, like Cheerios, 
top 10 worst scoring foods, Magic Spoon, which I'm not saying Magic Spoon is healthy. Um, you know, it's still an ultra processed cereal, but had a very, very low glucose response. So, so that's just all just is to say that, um, you know, what, what, what really stings is when people are really trying to make good choices, but they just, something is kind of without the data, it's really hard to know what's causing a a glucose spike, um, in them. And when that, that adds up over, over time to sort of really have these physiologic, uh, impacts. It's so well put. One of the things that I found from using levels is that if I'm going to sit down and say, you know, maybe I should eat or, or maybe, what would I say? One of the things that I've found from using levels is that I sit down at a meal and say, all right, do I want to order this or do I want to eat some of this? And then I'll actually think about it because I know after having done this for a few weeks, I know what it's going to do to my score. Like I've had perfect blood sugar all day. And is it really worth whatever that thing is? And you realize it wasn't. It was just a transient thought. It was your meat operating system saying, carbs, carbs, everybody eat carbs. And it's not like I'm denying myself. It's not like I'm eating zero carbs. It's not like I'm even in ketosis most of the time. I'm just on a moderate carb. And when I eat the carbs, they're the kind that don't spike my blood sugar. And when I do eat them, yes, I have lots of fat with them. I have protein with them. And if I know I'm eating carbs, like hmm, like substantial amounts, yeah, I'm going to take some supplements. Uh, some ones designed specifically for blood sugar. And then what do you know? I usually stay within the numbers. And if I don't, oh my God, I'll do 10 squats, just air squats. And you wait 20 minutes and your blood sugar drops. Like who would have thought I put the blood sugar in my ass? Mm. (laughs) And that's okay. So what else besides going for a walk can you do before or after a meal to keep your blood sugar under control if you're going to eat the donut? Yeah, there's several things. So the first thing is you can preload the donut. And by preload, I mean fat, fiber, and protein. Um, So have a chicken breast before the donut, give it 15 minutes, uh, eat, two uh, small handfuls of almonds or, you know, whatever, nut, pumpkin seeds. Um, Or, you know, have uh, some high fiber food. So like a chia pudding or something like that. Um, That there is evidence to support the fact that preloading with fat fiber or protein um, diminishes the post-meal glucose spike um, for several reasons. It may slow down GI transit time. So you absorb it more slowly. Um, fiber may actually block your ability to absorb all the nutrients, which is pretty darn magical. Um, and yeah, so that's, and, and protein, you know, can have several different effects. One is that it slows digestion. The other is that it may actually increase your insulin response. So you kind of just see lower glucose, which I don't know if that's a, a, a great thing. Um, interestingly, dairy protein seems to be the one that, that spikes insulin a little bit more. Um, but not to get things too complicated, fat, protein, fiber before the donut can help reduce glucose spike. There's other things as well. There's, of course, the apple cider vinegar shot, um, which appears vinegar appears to be mm-hmm. an insulin sensitizer. Um, it actually doesn't just have to be apple cider vinegar. It could be white vinegar. Um, the key thing is to check the vinegar and make sure it doesn't have sugar because there are some balsamic vinegars in the store that have three to five grams of sugar per per tablespoon or two tablespoons. So, But balsamic's a bad choice anyway. It, it's the highest in lead and it's the highest in mycotoxins of all the vinegars and probably histamine too. So yeah, it tastes good. Add, add a dose of allulose or stevia and apple cider vinegar. It'll taste like balsamic anyway. Totally. Like we can just get over the balsamic thing. I have actually really moved away from balsamic since yeah. wearing glucose monitoring because it's, it's an easy way to kind of just like kill your salad. Um, 
I like a champagne vinaigrette or something or like a vinegar or something like that. Um, but just make sure it has no sugar. So that really can help. And one to two ounces of apple cider vinegar can lead to a statistically significant reduction in uh, glucose spike from a, from a carbohydrate meal. Um, cinnamon, of course, is one. Um, there's various supplements like you talked about, chromium um, and others, berberine. Um, and then, of course, there's just sort of thinking about the context in which we're eating the meal. Did you sleep poorly the night before? Your glucose response is likely going to be higher. It's so cool. If you have an aura ring or any sleep tracker and you have the levels glucose monitor, it's nuts. You get a really crappy night's sleep, you wake up, whatever you eat, your blood sugar goes up. It, it's so annoying. Like all, You can have fat and it won't do it, but any protein, like what the hell? I just gained 15 points of blood sugar from the same meal I had yesterday. You certainly realize, wow, uh, I have a lot more control, but I have more responsibility, like Spider-Man's uncle. Totally, totally. I am so, I consider continuous glucose monitoring and now, not just a food biofeedback tool, but also a stress and sleep biofeedback tool because I do see my baseline glucose just resting between meals is higher when I have poor sleep. And then, of course, if I'm stressed, my glucose is often higher and stress will even create a glucose spike all on its own, which I know you've talked about on the podcast before because cortisol basically tells your liver to dump glucose. Um, and so, so I think about that now when I'm eating. Let's say you're going to eat the donut. Like, don't eat it when you're super frazzled and stressed out after you just opened an intense email that got you worked up. Don't eat it after the night that you got four hours of sleep. You know, eat it the day that you've done a high intensity interval training workout in the morning and got some good sleep. You're going to be way more insulin sensitive. So you're kind of getting a better bang for your buck in terms of that sugar load. Um, of course, that's not the way physiology wants us to do it because when we're sleep deprived or stressed, it actually drives us to want higher caloric foods. But um, one thing that's kind of interesting that you might not even see on a glucose monitor, but um, there's been studies showing that for people who have been sleep deprived, even for one or two nights and not like no sleep, just like less than optimal, maybe like 6.5 hours or so short sleepers. If, when you give them an oral glucose tolerance test the next day, so that 75 gram glucose load, their glucose response actually looks the same. If you look at the studies, but they had to secrete 50% more insulin to keep the glucose in in that same range as the people who got good sleep. So that just shows you how insulin resistant one night of poor sleep um, can make you. So yeah, wow. anyways, don't, yeah, it's just so important. And, and we actually just did a, this, the results have not been published yet, but we did a, a, a lightweight study with WHOOP um, and actually mm -hmm. showed um, for the first time that our, metabolic score correlates with the recovery score. So some, wow. some data showing that it actually, uh, if, you're, if your recovery is low, probably a day you want to dial in to a bit more of maybe a little keto forward day or, you know, don't, you know, just, just be really aware um, of what you're eating. And uh, even though our physiology is going to drive us to want to eat more sugar on those days that our recovery scores are lower, I think our brains, our big human brains are, are strong enough to use that biofeedback and that awareness to maybe overcome that primal sort of drive. So, um, yeah. I love this. I have one more question for you. Diet soda must be good for you because it might not spike your blood sugar as much as real soda. Tell me your thoughts on that, Dr. <laughs> Casey. Yeah. So 
this is a perfect example of why the glucose monitor is not the end all be all. And you should, and glucose should not be the only metric through which you determine your diet and why the future of, you know, multi-molecule sensing is going to be very exciting because we're going to be able to understand more features of how food's affecting our bodies and be able to disambiguate some of these mysterious ones. Um, diet soda, um, if it has sort of standard artificial sweeteners in it, they have a few effects. They, one, are going to impact the microbiome, potentially promote dysbiosis, which is deeply related to our metabolic health. Our microbiome mm -hmm. are one of our greatest superpowers in terms of keeping us metabolically healthy by their production of short-chain fatty acids um, and, and many other mechanisms. So that's one um, that artificial sweeteners can, can perturb. Um, the impact on our hunger hormones and some of our digestive hormones like GLP-1 um, we know that the artificial sweeteners can do that. And then also just the effect on our brain, the cephalic insulin response, which is this response in the brain where even in the absence of real sugar, our body thinks it's getting sugar. So it releases insulin. So even though the glucose doesn't rise, your body may be, we may be working that pancreas totally unnecessarily. And is stevia and monk fruit, are those going to do the same thing? I've seen mixed numbers on those. We have reviewed this this research and long story short, I think monk fruit and allulose are probably going to be your best bets in terms of non-nutritive sweeteners. These are not artificial you know, sweeteners. They're, they're natural in a sense and they're non-nutritive, meaning they're not going to spike your glucose. And I think Stevia, I, I, I've seen some mixed stuff, you know, GI upset and things like that. So I tend to stick, and also I don't like the way it tastes, but I tend to stick with monk fruit and allulose um, at this point, And I avoid artificial sweeteners. Xylitol? Z xylitol, um, you know, I don't know the, the latest date on that, but I know that with xylitol and some of the sugar alcohols, there can be some of that GI upset. Um, yeah. Allulose is also a sugar alcohol, though. It's no. just... Uh... Um, it just has less of a GI thing. So like xylitol seems to not cause an insulin spike, but if you take too much of it, it gives you disaster pants. And if you go to erythritol, you get like explosive gas. And if you mix the two together in the wrong combination, you get the depth charge effect. Yeah. Those are long-term keto words. So mm -hmm. what what you're you're looking to do there is say it was sweet enough, but not sweet enough to wreck my gut, unless you go into the monk fruit and allulose territory, in which case yeah. I do notice a high dose of allulose. Um, I don't feel as good on it. And there's a little bit of GI, but not like the other stuff. So I, I think monk fruit is best. Yeah. And stevia seems to be okay, yeah, but better than all these artificial weird ones and certainly doesn't have the gut wrecking effects. No question. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the take-home point is like monk fruit, allulose, stevia, and like try not to eat the artificial sweetener ones because they're, you know, there's enough evidence at this point that they mechanistically kind of impact our bodies in a negative way that I would, I would say avoid it. I, I actually save the, the chemical artificial sweeteners for the calorie counting people because they already feel bad. They won't notice if they eat them and will make them feel worse. So it's an act of kindness to save those for, for that crowd of, of angry, hangry, sad people. <laughs> Are you laughing at the suffering of trolls? I see what you're doing there, Casey. It's okay. I checked with uh, various Buddhist lamas about it, and they all said it was okay. As long as you said you were sorry afterwards. <laughs> no comment. And I am very grateful for the work you do. And I am hoping that, you know, we all move towards a more and more rational understanding of 
food and its impact on cellular biology. The other thing we can do is we can have open, uncensored, unflaming trolling conversations that say, well, here's the data. Here's what works for me. Here's what works for the you know 100,000 people who followed my advice. <laughs> and oh, yeah. you say, that can't work, therefore it doesn't. That's not science. We, we say, what's going on here? Let's figure it out together. That's where I want us to all be. This is the most exciting aspect. Well, I have, I get very excited about this in general, but one of the most exciting aspects about each of us having a personal dashboard of our data is that you can't fight with it. You know, if I am showing yes. someone that I ate this and it caused no glucose response or caused a huge glucose response, that is my truth. I mean, that I can say oatmeal is not heart healthy for me and I have the data to prove it. And I think what we're going to see happen in the next five to 10 years with this more of this biowearable data. I mean, I think about heart rate variability too, like thinking about this objective marker of stress on and, and all these choices we're making and, and really knowing what is causing stress dysfunction in our body coupled with glucose, coupled with the sleep data. I think, and I'll stick just to talking about food here. I think we're going to see it shift the conversation in some of these nutrition war spaces because it's going to become the norm for nutrition influencers to really, I think, have to show the data and show the goods. And it can't just be personal opinion. It, it, it has to actually work and have this readout. Yeah. And that is a world I want to live in where we actually um, have to you know, have objective data before we go crazy talking about why something is the best thing or the worst thing um, in the world. And yeah. so I think we're going to start to see a lot of nutrition, at least the forward-thinking nutrition influencers, start to lean on more of this. And we're already seeing it start to happen. Um, and it's a more transparent really? world. It's a more personalized world. And it's a world with more agency and critical thinking. And we all want that. So well, Levels is doing something else. So they'll give you your individual dashboard. But when you say, well, it wasn't just this one person, because maybe they were weird, right? right. It was... We looked at 100,000 people, and this actually seems to work for 87% of people. You're like, there you go. Maybe you should try that first. And if it doesn't work for you, did you get your data? Then do something else. And this is going to totally just blow up all the dumb marketing campaigns that are built on it's heart healthy. Like, no, it's not. Like, it's just, it's, it's balance sheet healthy is all it ever was, right? And we're done with that. So the, your combined data set is the most precious thing that Levels is doing for the world. But your individual data set is the most precious thing you're doing to make a person feel good. And when the feedback from the person goes into the system to increase our knowledge of human metabolism, that's where the real win is. That's why this whole space just has me all lit up. That's why I want to do the interview today. So Aww. thanks. Well Thanks, Thank Dr. You. Casey. Thank you. Yeah, and and I think uh, the personal, the collective, and some, some Michael Schneider at Stanford is doing really cool work about the glucotype stuff, which is, you know, let's say eighty-seven percent of people respond a certain way, and there's but there's a lot of outliers there. How do you actually find patterns amongst different subgroups, different phenotypic groups within the average that all respond similarly? you know, to the same stuff, then can you start to guide people based on, okay, if you respond um, this way to this food, it's likely that because you're kind of part of this glucotype that you're going to respond similar to these other foods. So that sort of predictive modeling is also, I think, where we're going to see that intersection between individual data and population data. And, and Stanford's doing some really cool work on that. But um, we're just super grateful for, for to get to chat about this with you on the podcast and 
and so thankful. Well, thanks for co-founding one of the most exciting biohacking monitoring companies. And thanks for getting us out of the the stamp collector, coin collector, uh, baseball card collector. Oh, does that make you happy? You collected a bunch of data and you didn't do anything with it. This is one of those things where you can literally you know, look look at it. Oh, look, I have an 80% metabolic score today. It actually works. I wave it over my arm and you know, right? And am I happy with an 80% metabolic score? Absolutely. I don't care if it's 100. Plus, last night I got garbage sleep. So I'm actually really stoked on that. Uh, and mm-hmm. I haven't been on a zero carb diet either today. So there you go. Like it's a win. But win I know game. before, even though I have access to like a million dollars worth of upgrade labs, tech downstairs, I couldn't do this uh, unless I pricked my finger all day long, which no one's going to do. So anyway, thank you. I think you're doing good work in the world, Casey. Levels.link slash Dave, guys, you want to be at the front of the line to get this. It is worth the wait and it is worth doing very much so because if you know everything you put in your mouth does something to you, you'll be more aware of it. End of the day, you'll live longer. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. Thank you, Dave. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.